Hello and welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name is Andrew Popel and I am your host for both uh, Final Draft, the radio show and the Final Draft Podcast. But today I'm going to be handing over the microphone to Irene Diakanastasis. Irene is a producer at 2SER, the radio station that is the home of Final Draft here in Sydney, Australia. And Irene is bringing us a conversation with Mercedes Mercia about her new thriller, Black Lies. Before we get started, though, I'll let you know the Final Draft podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. Every week, Final Draft broadcasts from the studios of 2SER here in Sydney. And at Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, whether that be debut authors or the classics, the people that you've known and loved for years. These conversations are a way to look at the issues that drive the author's storytelling, a way to help you discover more from the books that you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. Now, to SEL broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people, I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, and acknowledge that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. As I said, Irene Diakanastasis is going to be taking over the microphone. She is going to be bringing us a new novel from Mercedes Mercia. It is called Black Lies. I cannot wait to hear this, so stay tuned. Today I'm joined by the lovely Mercedes Mercia, who is here to talk about her new novel, Black Lies, out now. Welcome, Mercedes, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, to begin, how would you describe Black Lies? Oh, good question. So it's a crime thriller, I'd say, and it is set in a fictional prison in New South Wales and it follows a criminal psychologist whose name is Dr Laura Fleming. And at the prison there's this notorious um, inmate who's in um, for, for murdering, you know, pretty, pretty brutal murder, and he never revealed where he left the body of his victim. So this, this inmate gets diagnosed with stage four terminal cancer. He's only got a few weeks left to live. And so the authorities bring on Laura to, to sort of sit with him and try and convince him to reveal where he left the body of his victim to give you know, the victim's family some closure before, you know, before it's too late and he, and he passes. But as, as Laura starts to sit in these sessions with him and talk to him and get to know him a little bit, she starts to realise that something doesn't feel quite right. So she starts to, she follows her, her intuition and she starts to go down these, these rabbit holes but as she's doing so, she realises that there's people, you know, connected that that will do anything to, to keep the past hidden. Now, Black Lies is your second novel following criminal psychologist Laura Fleming. For those who haven't read White Noise, which is your debut novel, can you tell us a bit more about Laura Fleming and how has her character changed from the previous novel? So Black Lies is set about 18 months after the events of White Noise. So Black Lies, my second book, they're both standalone books, so you don't have to have read either of them to to understand and read either of them, if, if that makes sense. So you yep. don't have to have read White Noise to understand and, and read Black Lies because it's just really sort of touched on quite briefly. So yeah, it starts about 18 months after the events of White Noise and 
Laura's in in a better place. The you know I, w- I won't go into too much detail for spoilers. The events of White Noise were pretty you know pretty horrific, pretty full on. There was a big sort of you know um, attack sort of action scene at the end. But she's she's been working, you know, to get to get through that and to sort of get over that for the last eighteen months. And we see her in Black Lives in a bit of a better position, sort of mentally and uh, yeah, physically and, and and mentally. Now, as you mentioned before, within Black Lives, Laura, I feel like at least to me, she seems like she's still in quite an intense position so to speak not only is her job Mm. quite demanding as a criminal psychologist but she's been dealt with a pressure-filled task in particular with regard to Thomas Kovac now how would you say Laura manages her newfound situation were there certain coping mechanisms or mentalities she had to employ for this particular job well I think I really like Laura she's a she's a really strong gutsy character who she sort of does everything she can to achieve her goals. Some of the some of the ways she goes about it aren't exactly protocol and, you know, aren't quite following the rules, but she just wants to, to go into the prison every day to, to do her best, to try her hardest and have the best outcomes for for the people she works with. She still obviously carries a bit of trauma from everything that happened in White Noise, but also everything that happened in her past, which again I won't go into into too much detail about because that gives away spoilers. She, yeah, she still has a bit of PTSD, especially around her daughter Riley, and I think that flavors a lot of the decisions she makes and and the way she acts, and I think the way she reacts to certain situations. And, you know, without going into it too much, the the victim of of this, you know, horrific crime, she sees a lot of her daughter in the victim. And I think that's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a holdover from the, from the trauma that her and her daughter went through in White Noise. So I think it does, it does flavour all of her decisions and, and her reactions and everything that happens in Black Lives. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible to separate yourself from that that she you know she she is trying to but you know it's it's one thing being educated in you know psychology and understanding um you know understanding it when it happens to other people but when it shows up in your own life she's finding it hard to to sort of recognize it and and separate herself from it would you say that almost makes her more of a relatable character because the job itself of a criminal psychologist, I think people might assume that going into it, she would not necessarily face this difficulty with having to separate her own experiences from informing her job. And it's obviously much harder than that, or there's much more nuance to that. So Exactly. Were you showing that and did yeah. you feel as if that made her more, at least authentic or relatable to the readers? Yes, I, that's exactly what I, was, what I was trying to do. And I wanted to show that, you know, she is, she's a very smart character. She's a very educated character. She's a very determined character. She always goes in. She's also quite idealistic. She sees the, 
she sees the best in people. She sees she believes in second chances and rehabilitation and that kind of stuff. So I was very conscious of her being a character with depth and flaws, like you know, like a like a normal human being. Yeah. We've, all, we've all got our flaws. I didn't want her to be seen as this, you know, this powerhouse sort of machine of a person with with no flaws. So I did want to show the, you know, the light and the dark and the fact that you can be, you know, a person that's educated in psychology, you know, got a doctorate, she's, you know, at the top of her top of her career, but she can still carry these, you know, these internal scars from things that have happened in the past and these are, these are big you know big events big traumas that have happened to her and I think it's you know it is only set 18 months after white noise so it would be unrealistic to show her as having completely healed from you know the events and everything that happened so I wanted to flavor that through through her actions and sort of you know, explain a little bit of the reason why she she might be reacting a little bit differently to how someone who hadn't been through those experiences might react in that situation. Yeah, and before we go into a bit more of Thomas Kovac and his character, how was mm. it writing the dynamic between Laura and Thomas? Were there certain things you wanted to portray? Obviously, we understand that this is within a professional environment considering he is in some sense of the word her case or her subject but Mm -hmm. what were certain factors you wanted to consider in their reactions towards each other throughout the novel and how did you try to develop that throughout Mm. it's interesting because those scenes between Laura and Thomas Kovac they're they're in a in an, you know what we call an interview room in a prison so it's a very neutral room on purpose it's a soundproofed room there's basically only a table a couple of chairs there's no decoration there's nothing to distract you know either either person in the room you know it's a locked room there's basically a duress alarm on the wall alongside the you know the soundproofing materials so it's a very plain room and there's just two people sitting in there having a conversation so it is quite a quite a sterile sort of setup there's not a lot of distractions and not a lot of setting and you know environment sort of around the conversation that they're having so I was very aware that it had to be this there had to be nuance and meaning in every interaction they have and I wanted to really show, I think through their body language, through the their tone of voice, the way they said, you know, words, that they could be having this conversation, but there was this whole other conversation that was going on that's not actually being said. So I really enjoyed the, the challenge of just writing two characters in a room, one of them who is very you know anti-authoritarian he doesn't trust Laura he doesn't trust psychologists he's you know been in prison for over a decade so he's quite hardened he you know the the prison idea of you know not revealing anything to anyone because it can be used against you and then Laura's desperately trying to 
to form a connection with him to find some kind of you know relationship or or touchstone that she can that she can form with this man to try and create this this trust and this relationship that he might end up revealing you know his his secret to her so then you know she can give this poor victim's family at least you know a small <laughs> modicum of of closure in their in, in their hard times yeah definitely and with this quite sterile environment as you described before Mm. did that kind of lead you to place more of an emphasis at least within the writing process on dialogue specifically yes I think in those themes the dialogue was really prioritized and because that is the you know the crux of of those scenes is is the conversation and like (sighs) Laura the only the only for lack of a better word, you know, weapon that she's got in her in her arsenal is her words, and the way that she uses her words to to find a connection with you know the man sitting opposite her. So I really wanted to to make this dialogue really stand out and be and be really important, but I wanted it underpinned by you know, facial expressions, body language, all that kind of, you know, all those kind of subtle, unspoken ways that a person can say something, you know, they can be sitting there, you know, having his arms folded, his, you know, feet pointed towards the door, avoiding her eye, basically all the you know, all the signs that he, he didn't want to be there and he wanted to sort of get out as soon as possible. So I guess I wanted to, to meld those together and I guess, also, yeah, also also have a bit of background on on what the room looks like, how sterile it is, the reasons behind that and and what it is like sitting, you know, in that room. You've got no distractions. All you can do is you know, focus on on the person in front of you and and the tension and sort of charged atmosphere that 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 provides as well because you know it's completely soundproofed. It you know it's used for psychology sessions, but also for sessions of you know inmates with their lawyers. So it needs to be soundproofed for for legal reasons. So nothing that gets said in there can be heard. You know, outside. So. You know, if something happens, there's, you know, she screams or there's banging, you know, it's not going to be heard. So I really wanted to, to up that sort of, have that sort of simmering tension in the background as well. Yeah, and I think that really translates into the novel and it feels almost as a reader yourself that as Laura's trying to get inside his head and figure it out, you're there with her for that journey. Mm, mm. And I think I did it, I did that quite deliberately with the, um, first person, present tense yep. point of view. I I really like. I think I think for this story, the reader really needed to be inside Laura's head and be limited to what she knows as well and what she sees, rather than sort of having a you know an overview and a sort of understanding of what else might be going on you know outside the prison in the story. I really wanted that sort of that claustrophobic, you know, really inside one character's head. So you sort of, you're feeling everything that she's feeling and you're understanding every decision she makes. 
and you're really riding that, you know, riding sort of with with her throughout the throughout the story. And now going on to a bit more of Thomas Kovac, he's obviously, as we know, quite a crucial character. Mm. Can you tell us a bit more about the writing of his character and were there certain inspirations for how you wrote his behaviour or motivations? I um, I did a lot of research into the psychology of offending and without going into too too much detail because I don't want to sort of, you know, (laughs) Give any spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers um, here. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, a lot of yeah re- research into sort of offending, but how you know someone might act, um, you know, in sort of various situations, and you know what how he would act if he'd been in prison for the last fifteen years, and that 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 kind of stuff. Yeah, without. That it's a tricky one because I don't want to go into his his motivations and you know the what ends up uh, transpiring sort of at the at the end of the at the end of the novel as well. Besides Thomas and Laura, were there any other character or character dynamics that you particularly enjoyed writing in this novel? Hmm, it's a good question. I love writing Sam. So Sam is a Correctional officer. She works in the in the prison with Laura, and she's just sort of she's a force of nature. She's this character that's just so completely and utterly herself, and she just has no real care or respect for protocols or rules. And if she wants to do something, she'll do it. If she wants to say something, she'll say it. <laughs> and I thought she was just. She's a really great character to put alongside Laura, who sometimes she can be a little bit uptight. She, you know, she always wants to do the right thing. She's trying. She can be a bit serious. She gets in there and just wants to work, work, work. And then she has this friend who's sort of quite, quite wild and and brings out a different side of her, I think. And yeah, I had I had so much fun writing Sam. I think. You know, there's a there's a bit of me that really wants to be a little bit more like her and just you know not care what other people say or you know not care what they think of you. You just say what what you think and you know that's you know that's that's who she is. What what you see is what you get with her, I guess. Moving from the book to more of your experiences. To my knowledge, you have worked in the criminal justice system, in particular the communications for corrections in South Australia. Now, how did your unique insight into the prison system influence this particular story and were there any specific experiences or inspirations that you put into this story? Well, I think the seed of the idea first... The seed of the idea first started when I wrote White Noise and... It was, I was chatting to one of my friends who's a psychologist that I work with and she was just telling me what she had on for the rest of the day and she was saying that, you know, she had to assess this um, this inmate and his suitability for early release to parole and she would write up her, you know, her risk, or she would sit with the, she would sit with the inmate, talk to him, then she'd write up her you know, her risk assessment of 
whether or not she believes from her perspective that he is fit for early release onto parole, then that goes to parole board and they consider that report along with a number of other factors as well when they make their decision. Yep. And I just sat there and I just thought, oh my gosh, like that is it's just such a huge important responsibility to sit to sit on one person's shoulders. And so so that was where the idea first started of that I really wanted to write from a you know a criminal psychologist's point of view. And then I think the germ of the idea for Black Lies came and it's sort of just been sitting in the back of my head for a few years. And a few years ago, uh, I was working near a team who was helping to bring the no body, no parole legislation through parliament in South Australia. Oh, wow. And yeah, that, that legislation is, you know, it's obviously pretty much exactly as it sounds. If a, you know, if an offender doesn't release the, you know, the whereabouts of their victim's body, then they're not eligible for parole. And so I just thought that's just such an interesting, you know, such an interesting thing thing to pass. And so my brain just started ticking away and I thought, oh, you know, there's there's a prisoner who essentially is in there on a life sentence. They don't have that carrot of parole sort of dangling over their head, I guess, you know, sort of, you know, convincing them that it would be good to, you know, behave well and undertake all these programs and, you know, do the right thing. And then if, you know, if all of that happens, then you, you know, you might be eligible for parole. But if they're in there and they're not willing to give up where they've left the body, then they're not eligible for parole. So they've got nothing to, nothing to have good behavior for, I guess. So I wanted to sort of explore, you know, that idea that they've really got nothing to lose because, They've already got a life sentence and it's unlikely that they're going to be staying in there any longer. And I just really liked that idea of a dangerous inmate with, with nothing to lose and what they might be capable of. Given your real life experiences, did you ever find a struggle to balance this fictionalised story with the reality? You, I know you would obviously have the insight into an accurate experience within the prison system or to an extent of that, but did that depiction of the prison system within your novel was a certain struggle to make sure that it was accurate or to make it seem as if it was believable almost? Yeah, I think I think there was the there was you know, I had to I had to be very careful and make sure that no situation, character or, you know, setting was based on, you know, anyone thing that I'd experienced in real life. So I couldn't base a character on, you know, an inmate that I know, for example. That's not obviously <laughs> not not something that I'm that I'm able to do. So I had to be very careful to if if there was something that I picked and choose chose from you know, from life experience that I mixed it together with sort of my own imagination and sort of plucked things from various areas that I I guess that I know even, you know, the prison that it's set at, Westmead Prison, is is a fictional prison set in New South Wales, so different different state. And that was sort of an amalgamation of a number of, you know, prisons that I've seen and experienced around Australia, but also also my own imagination, I guess. So it is it is a fictionalized 
story and a lot of the stuff is is fictionalised, I guess, in the way that, you know, a police procedural is fictionalised because no one really wants to read a book about a police officer that's sitting there doing, you know, paperwork 70% of the time, which is, you know, a huge part of a police officer job. It is it is a fictionalised book and, that yeah, I guess that's, that's the heart of it. I dramatise things for for entertainment and you know at the end of the day it is a that's what it's there for it's an entertaining book it's not there as a um a reflection of <laughs> of of the you know one particular prison or prison system or anything like like that yeah definitely and you briefly mentioned before about your research into offending in particular now how much of your writing process or the process of writing this novel in general was dedicated to just simple research? Mm. I think I was lucky in the way that I hold a, you know, I've, I've held a lot of knowledge in my head. So a lot of the, you know, a lot of the location stuff I didn't have to do much research on. I think from, I'm not a psychologist, so I had to do a lot of research into psychology and the psychology behind offending Um, and I had to do a little bit of research into police procedure. There is a police officer character and a little bit of research into sort of medical field as well. The, you know, the ins and outs of um, prescription drug addiction, Um, you know, a childhood violence, you know, and the impacts that 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 might have. I did a little bit of research into traumatic head injuries and how that can, you know, how that can lead to, to offending in some situations as well. So, yeah, I, I did have to do quite a wide range of, of research outside of the the criminal justice system sphere of knowledge that I, that I already had. To conclude this interview, can we expect to see more from Laura Fleming in future novels? And if so, should we listen out for them in the near future? I, I hope so. I've got lots of other things I'd love to see to see Laura do I'd love to see her in a women's prison because Westmead prison is a male prison so I'd love to see her in a women's prison I'd also love to get her out to a regional prison in a small town and have her exploring those sort of those close-knit small town dynamics and her being outsider from the city that's you know might not necessarily be be welcomed by some by some of the cohorts so so yeah I would I would really love to and um, you know writing busily so (laughs) fingers crossed there'll be another one on the horizon soon that's quite exciting to hear and before we go I was just wondering since crime fiction is such a huge genre not even just within novels but also tv and film was a a particular actor you kind of envisioned for the role of Laura or was that yes that's a great question, and I do have one. Uh, Sarah Snook, who wow. was in it was in Succession, so she's 
an Australian actress and I actually went to school with her. Oh, wow. Not that she would remember who I am (laughs) these days. She's far too fabulous and famous. But, um, yeah, we acted in a school play together in our first couple of years of of high school, so <laughs> I would love to um I would love to have her as as Laura, and I think she would have the the you know the range and the emotional sort of depth to play her, but also would be great in the you know in the action sort of scenes as well. I could see her I could see her really pulling that off well. Yeah, I can totally visualize it right now. Yeah. And I'd love to see that happen in future. Well, to Me con- too. <laughs> to conclude this interview, thank you so much, Mercedes, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And for those listening, Black Lies is out now. That is it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you also to Arindia Canastasis, producer extraordinaire, and to Mercedes Mercia for bringing in her new book, Black Lies. You'll find more Final Draft every week. If you're on, if you're in Sydney, you can just tune in. You can tune your dial and listen to us on the radio. You can also listen at 2ser.com every week. Or if you are enjoying this on the podcast, which I assume you are, you can get new Final Draft a couple of times a week. We've got shorts. We've got full length. Just subscribe. And if you are enjoying us and you want to help, want to help other people discover... One of the ways you like you could you could literally just grab their phone out of their hands, go to their podcast app, subscribe. But another way to find a kindred spirit is to give us a rating. Just tap that little five star thumbs up, however the rating system works on your podcast app. Even better, leave a comment. It lets us know that you're loving us. <laughs> Final draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. That's me. I'm gonna say goodbye. Uh, maybe I'm talking too much because I didn't get to uh, didn't get to talk this episode. But look, I will be back. I will have some new books for you in the next week. And uh, till then, happy reading. Bye for now.